why don't we do what we're here to do? Take God's word and open it up to Hebrews 11. We look to now worship him in the word. Hebrews 11. I have little doubt this morning, especially in light of recent events that have been talked about uh, at length, that you're here this morning and it is very likely true that you are desiring a better country. Is that not true? I hardly need to review the reasons why, but the most obvious, of course, would be extended orders, closed borders, and quite frankly, an abuse of power. You desire a better country. You know, as I look out on a group like this, in a place like this, I would say this morning that desire is obvious, is it not? We desire something more. And can I tell you that there's nothing wrong with that? Contrary to what you might hear, there is nothing wrong with desiring a better country in these conditions. There's nothing wrong with desiring a better Canada. God tells us in his word to pray for leaders, that we would live peaceful lives, that we would be salt and light. That's what our Lord says. And in one sense, that is because God desires a better country for his people. Is that not true? He desires a better country for his people. However, brothers and sisters, I would say this, there is something wrong if that is all that our faith desires. A better Canada, like that's a ceiling. There's something wrong if our faith is only aimed at things getting better here. There's something wrong, and I would submit to you this morning, and futile and futile if our ultimate hope, if what you're pining for this morning is that things will just get better here in Canada. Things will get better here in Canada, you might say. Friends, listen, I think many of you would agree we've had our golden age. We've had our freedoms. We've had our comforts. We have indeed had our liberty. We've had that. That golden age has come, and that golden age is passing away. For some of us, it's been a couple of decades of liberty, civilly, and for others, many decades. Yet consider these words from the Apostle Paul. I want you to consider the Apostle Paul and the letters that he wrote. Let me just give you from two of them. First, earlier on, the Apostle Paul said this in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, writing to Timothy, he said this, actually we'll start in uh, the second letter, for 2 Timothy 4, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. I'm sorry, that was 1 Timothy 4. Now let's go to the second letter. And listen to this. Tell me if it sounds familiar. 2 Timothy 3. This is the parting words of the Apostle Paul. And listen to what he says. But understand this. This is to Timothy. As he knows, he's passing the baton on for the latter days. He says, understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. One might say, Apostle Paul, are you writing for today? This is the prophecy from God's word of what exactly we are seeing today. Church, none of what we see unfolding around us as we weigh it, as we always should, against God's word should surprise us. There should be no surprise. God told us these days would come. This is, of course, the progression of our age from bad to worse, from hatred to harm. And church, with that great progression, there is a great temptation. And I believe you feel it this morning, a great temptation to look back, to look backwards, to look back even to just two years ago. Maybe you've said this, say, I wish it could be like it was two years ago. Maybe you've said that. There's a great temptation to do that. I miss those days, you might say. There's a temptation in this present persecution to look back and even want to go back and to just fix our mind there, which I would submit to you, if camped in the way things were, will always, mark this, will always lead to futility if that's where your mind is. It'll always lead to futility, not to mention frustration. Listen, looking backwards, pining backwards, always does that. It always does that. Now, in light of that reality, which maybe is very real for you today, we need a reminder on a couple things. Number one, that if the past, if looking back, if two years ago was indeed what is best for us, God's people, then we'd be living just like two years ago under a sovereign God. He would say that is what's best and that's what I give to you. However, we are not living that way and God is sovereign. Thus, that is not what's best for us. Number two is looking back and pining for the past. I ask you, Christian, is that what God would have you do? Would God have you look back and constantly be looking back, hopeful that things could get back to normal. No, what, what direction does the word of God compel, command the Christian to do all the time? What direction? Forward. Upward. This is the direction of the Christian. Christ constantly commanded his disciples to move forward without looking back. Christ said in the Gospel of Luke, it was in chapter 9, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Do you see the motion there? No one who puts his hand to the plow, the hand of the plow is going forward and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Not only will they be torn asunder, it's a contradiction in and of itself. Then later in chapter 17, calling his disciples, same gospel, Luke, Chapter 17, calling his disciples to look forward to the coming kingdom. What did he say? He used an Old Testament illustration, the most famous one that looked back. He said, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife pining for Sodom. 
And what happened to her most famously? Pillar of salt. What about Paul to the saints in Philippi? He said this in Philippians 3.13. Brothers, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and listen to the language, straining forward. Straining forward. That's your marathon racer, your sprinter, lunging for the tape. Straining forward. Is that you? Straining forward to lie to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in who? Christ Jesus. That's the posture of the Christian. Even more pointed, even more pointed, the apostle again in the letter to Colossae, in Colossians 3, listen to this. He says this. This is his exhortation just after he's given gospel truths in chapters 1 and 2. He says this at the hinge in chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, where is your vision, Paul? What does he tell us? Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then listen to this. This is a command. This is what we are to do. Set your minds. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then listen to this, then you also will appear with him in glory. Is that not where you want your mind to be set? On that great truth in glory. Brothers and sisters, we look forward, we look up, we look to Christ and his future appearing. Brothers and sisters, I ask, is your sight limited to the shallow prospect of an opened up summer? Are you restricting your vision to simply pine for that? That maybe by July things will open up. Listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting that but what i'm saying if that's your terminus if that's what ultimately you're hoping for it's futile instead is your vision cast up on the certain hope here it is the certain the rock solid certainty of the return of christ in his kingdom that's a glorious hope is it not if you're struggling with looking back amidst persecution today then take note this morning that such a wrestling match is nothing new. I want you to look down at the letter that's open in front of you. It was written to such people. Some were genuine saints. The letter's recipients were facing growing persecution, and as such, and note this, in persecution they were facing temptation. This will resonate with us. In persecution they were facing temptation. The letter to the Hebrews was written to those looking back on the old way. That's your audience. There's many in this letter who were written to that wanted to look back on the old way because persecution had come and the temptation was strong to look backwards. And so, chapters 1 to 10, the author casts the futility of the old against the glories of the new. The letter open in front of you outlines how the old is powerless, temporary, and merely a shadow of the new covenant realities that are fulfilled, of course, in Jesus Christ. He is powerful. He is eternal. And as the author of Hebrews looks to press his point, he looks to an example. In fact, he looks to examples. 
As we arrive here in chapter 11, we see many examples, many saints of old. And what we see in these Old Testament saints is where their vision was set. That's what I want you to grab a hold of this morning. We know the saints in Hebrews 11, but where was their vision cast? Where was their mind set? So clear in this text, and that's the key of this text this morning. A vision that's not battling with neck strain. These Old Testament saints, this hall of faith, is not battling with looking backwards. Not at all. They're not pining for what once was. No, that vision looked forward and upward because it was a vision driven by faith. By faith. Church, faith is the key to upward focus and upward living. Faith is the key to upward focus and upward living. And hence, you have an entire chapter devoted to faith. Famously, look down at verse 1. The elements of faith are given to open the chapter. Many of you might have this memorized. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the necessity of faith, look at verse 6. As a believer, the necessity of faith, how paramount it is. Look at verse 6. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. These given by way of introduction, those verses to the examples of faith that the rest of the chapter will give. Old Testament examples like, look at verse 4, Abel, whose faith was demonstrated by his offering. You remember that account in Genesis 4? Gave a right offering in faith, as opposed to his brother Cain. What about Enoch, verse 5, whose faith was demonstrated by his walking with God? A Genesis account in Genesis 5 tells us that. And what about Noah in verse 7, whose faith was demonstrated by his reverent obedience? And of course, Old Testament examples like Abraham, who a good chunk of this chapter is devoted to. Let's consider the verses of our study. We're going to begin in verse 8, go through to 16. Look at it with me. Let me read this text. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity. To return, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Father, we pray as we consider this text that you would illuminate its truths for us. Father, that we would understand what you are saying to us. Father, that we would receive the living word that you give to us. 
and that we would go out and live this truth to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Church, we're going to see three aspects of faith in this account, three aspects this morning, and I pray they will be a great encouragement for you and a great help for us in this time. So let's look at the first one. Look down at verse 8, and we would term this faith's action. Verse 8, faith's action. Let's look at it again. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith. That often repeated phrase in this chapter expresses means. It expresses means. By faith is the instrument in which saints like Abraham did what they did. By faith. And what was the doing here for Abraham? What was the action? Let's not miss this. Look again. Obedience. Obedience, of course, is faith in action. Obedience flows from faith. What it doesn't say is that by obedience, Abraham had faith. You see that? Let's not confuse. It didn't say because of his obedience, it gave him faith. That's backwards. No, Abraham, as all his righteous actions demonstrated in the Old Testament, had first, had first faith. Faith. Abraham, of course, was once a pagan in the land of Ur, also known as Babylon, and it was hardly godly. And then this happened. Take a look at this. Why don't you turn in Genesis 12? Let's take a little sidestep. At this once pagan in Babylon, something happened. Of course, in the first 11 chapters, we have the creation of the world and the immediate fall of mankind. In Genesis 11, we have the dispersion of all people to become various nations across the land, various pagan nations. These are the rebellious to God dispersed throughout the world. And as we arrive here at chapter 12, it would have seemed to the first readers a very strange thing. Look at this with me at Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, If you're following along with this account and you've read the first 11 chapters and you read just those first few verses, what do you expect in verse 3? It's like, well, what flavor of rebellion will this guy have, right? What way will he throw his arms up and say, no, God, I have a better way. What way will this man do it? Keep reading. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. It must grab us initially. That's obedience to the word of God. Obedience to the word of God. Now turn back to Hebrews 11 and you can see the instant connection with this chapter. So Abram went. So Abram went. That's the characteristic of this list. The saints in Hebrews 11. Obedience. Abram went. It's an obedient response. And Abram's actions in Genesis 12 is his faith in action. It was his faith lived out. And that's helpful, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But before we leave this verse, let me draw your attention as we turn back to Hebrews, verse 8, 
I want us to not miss this in verse 8 of Hebrews 11. Look at the very end. And he went out, look, not knowing where he was going. Do you see that? Not knowing where he was going. Church, we need to see this. That is faith. That is faith in action. What a picture. Hearing God's call, responding to it in obedient action. But look, in obedient action, end of verse 8, that does not know where one is headed. Do you see that? Obedience that doesn't have all the details, doesn't have the full plan, doesn't know how it ends, but still obeys. Do you see that? Still obeys. Now, this is a huge, huge struggle for us, is it not, brothers and sisters? This is the kind of point you can press of application because you know everyone struggles with it. How does it end, Lord? Where am I going, Lord? What's going to happen, Lord? I need to know. You can understand, Lord, that I need to know some details. Okay, even just give me some before I obey. How often does our obedience get upended by our desire to know the outcome? Have you been there? Your obedience is tripped up, and what you would throw up to the Lord is, I just need to know how this ends. I just need to know how this ends. You want answers. You want outcomes. You want certainties. But listen, faith knows nothing of that. Do you see that? I know it's unsettling. Believe me, I'm the same. You want answers. You want certain these outcomes. But listen, faith knows nothing of that. And here's your example in the text. Church, our preoccupation with needing to know plagues our obedience. Our preoccupation with needing to know can be short-circuiting your obedience to our Lord. So many examples I could give, but of course, obedience sputters abound. How many this very morning fail to obey the clear commands of God because they're unsure of the outcome? How many? I was struck by Pastor James Coates. Of course, we're all familiar with him. In his very last sermon before he was incarcerated, he said something like this. I'll paraphrase him. I don't know how this ends. I don't know where I'm going. He's looking out at all the cops. But I know this. I obey my Lord and I leave the rest to him. Do you not want that to be your testimony too? I don't know how this ends. Alex doesn't, I don't, but we want to be found faithful. Let us go being found faithful to the end. To the end. Faith in action goes in obedience to Christ, and it doesn't demand answers first. Note that, beloved, let me say it again. Faith in action goes in obedience to Christ, and it does not demand answers first. Faith in action is also not caught up with the temporary. This is very helpful. Look at verse 9. It's not caught up in temporal things. Oh, how we're plagued by the temporary. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What we cannot miss here is this. Abraham goes to the promised land, but look at this, doesn't regard it as the permanent land. Do you see that? He goes to the promised land, but he does, look at the text it's as if a foreign land. He doesn't look at this as if it's permanent. Amazing. Abraham goes to live in the land of promise. How? What's his posture? It's the land of promise. And what's his posture? As if it's a foreign land. In other words, Abraham goes to the land that God has promised yet, mark it. He does not live there as if it's his native 
permanent home. So helpful. So helpful. He lives in the promised land like a stranger. In case we miss that, look at verse 9. As verse 9 goes on to describe the dwellings, tents, tents. Beloved, a tent is a temporary structure. As much as it may be lovely, I believe a tent may be coming for you, Hill City, and it'd be lovely in the providence of God. I think we all recognize it's temporary. In fact, if I could encourage you again, Hill City, it is just simply amazing. You've been sojourning without a building as long as you have, and yet you're stronger than ever. And that is because your eyes aren't, we just need a permanent home. Your eyes are there. You recognize tents are temporary. They're temporary shelters, temporary structures. Tents are not erected for permanence. No one erects a tent and says, this is it. I've arrived. This is where I'll be forevermore. Nobody does that. And such, we keep our sights set where they need to be. Faith in action is not looking for permanence here, beloved. It doesn't look to set down tent poles and uh, stakes as if that's the future permanent thing. Faith in action knows nothing of permanence here at all. Even among, you would say, well, what about the good things God has given us? Yes, they're great things. All of it, but it's just temporary. And as such, if we keep our sights set here on keeping this, making it last, you know what happens. We will experience weakened faith. Is it any wonder, is it any wonder people struggle with faith when they can't let go of temporary things? Is it any wonder? Because our vision, when you do that, when you've got the vice grip around the temporary, your vision's in the wrong place. Your energy and your efforts are in the wrong place. We find support for this, by the way, in verse 10. Look at it again with me. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Incredible. Abraham was not fixated on the city of man. Alex referenced the city of man. We're becoming very familiar with that in these days, are we not? The city of man, the quest for the perfect city, the great reset of that city. No, Abraham's fixation was what? The city of God. The city of God. Looking, and this is amazing in the original, there has a repeated sense of that looking. It's just beautiful. He's ongoing. He doesn't stop Abraham iteratively, repeatedly looking at that. That is Abraham never ceasing to look, never ceasing to be content on earth. That's your picture. That's because Abraham's eyes are squarely on kingdom come. Kingdom come. His eyes squarely on that. That is a nonstop gaze market on the heavenly city. Abraham didn't stop. That's the new one, the one coming, the one outlined in the book of Revelation. That's where his eyes were. That is how, beloved, you get through this country with its injustice and its evil. Eyes above, eyes forward. That's how you get through. Faith in action looks and keeps looking to that city, the permanent heavenly city. Mark that. This is not just a one-time look. This is an ongoing look. Whose designer and builder is God. Church, now I would ask, how is that not encouraging for us? Everything you recognize as corrupt here will be corrected there. So don't just desire a better country here. Desire God's country there. In fact, fixate on it. 
Okay, that's face action, face reception, and now, sorry, face reception. Look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Instrumentally, Sarah lives by faith through her reception of God's power to bear a son. As verse 11 reminds us, Sarah was in old age, well past the childbearing years. Sarah in Genesis 18, as her husband did in Genesis 17, initially laughed at the news. Do you remember that? She laughed when she heard the news that she would bear Abraham a son. Both she and Abraham advanced in years, yet Sarah, as the end of verse 11 confirms, ultimately considered God faithful. God promised a son, and by faith Sarah received power to conceive in old age. Likely 90 years of age, by faith the power to conceive. And church, I think in this time we need reminding of the power that we receive in faith. In verse 12, we have that. Look at verse 12 with me again. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. From one man as good as dead, God gave innumerable descendants as promised. Only Almighty God can do that, and Almighty God still administers that power. Yet, friends, that power of God is often not the power we want, right? That's not the power that we want. Really, it boils down to this. We want the power of God to change others, to change society. And we miss what the power of God, like with Sarah here, will do, here it is, through us. Through us. How often do we miss opportunities to receive faith powerfully like here? How often? Church, by faith, let us receive the power of God to endure, to stand, and to obey. Christian standing against cultural tides, Christians enduring under wicked laws, Christians that honor the emperor in their disobedience by peaceful gathering. That is the power of God received by faith. That's face reception, and it's the necessary balance to face action. How often is living by faith so much more a reception than a revolution? How often is living by faith so much more a quiet resolve than a quick response? Church, God has promised an inheritance, a city designed by God. And I ask, will you wait for it? Will you wait for it? Sure, it's not on your timeline. It's not coming the way that you would have drawn it up. But mark this, it is coming. It is coming. And we are drawing closer to that grand reception. It's face reception along with face action. And the last one here, face desire. Look at verse 13. We'll consider this section as a whole, verse 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. 
Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Look at verse 13 again. Though these all died in faith, and you say, who are these all? That would be Abraham, of course. Verse 9, Isaac and, and Jacob, the patriarchs as they're called. Israel's fathers. The text tells us that Israel's forefathers did not receive the things promised. That's what it says. And you're going to ask, they, but they dwelt in the land. They walked in it. They lived in it. Doesn't Genesis record that? Yes, but the text also tells us, look at verse 13. They may have walked in it, but they were actually strangers and exiles in it. Again, that is God's people, mark the mode, in transit, even in the promised land. You see that? In the promised land, they're in transit. And church, if that is true of God's people in the promised land, passing through, how much more is it true of us here, now, today, in a land that's anything but promised? Friends, this language of our reality as strangers, exiles, and sojourners is what you repeatedly see in the New Covenant. You're familiar with that language of us, right? Because it's the repeated moniker for us as New Covenant believers. I want you to consider the introduction of 1 Peter. It says, to those who are elect, what? Exiles of the dispersion. Jews there in context, but pointing to a New Covenant reality. Confirmed in other places like Philippians 3.20. Listen to this. Philippians 3.20, Paul addresses Philippi and he says this, But our citizenship is where? In heaven. In heaven. That's our home. Indeed, that is why verse 14 here says, In this land, even though it's the promised land, they're still seeking a homeland. By implication, there's nothing in this land that we would be considered homeland. As such, the declaration in verse 16 is no surprise. Look at it. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. I want you to look down in that and note the tense switch there. They desire. The past tense is gone. Do you see that? This is an ongoing present tense desiring from past to present. They're desiring, and here it is, they still are. That's the ongoing, unending posture and focus of the pilgrim, the sojourner, eyes fixed on where he is going, not where he is. Do you see that? Eyes fixed on where he's going, not where he is. This land is not his home. Not his face desire, the heavenly home. Not a better home here on earth. As tempting as it is, isn't it? Fixate on how this country can be better, but... That's not the focus we see in this text of the child of God. Nor is it the desire of the father for his children. Look at the end of verse 16. It tells us this, and let's not miss this before we leave this account. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. Therefore, Marks, in other words, because his people desire a better country because his children seek a heavenly city, a dwelling designed and built by God, because of that faith's desire, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Do you see that? You desire the city of God, not the city of man. You set your sights on the heavenly country, not the earthly country. You live this life in transit as a sojourner, an exile, as an alien, as one that is homeless. And what? And what? God is not ashamed of you. God is not ashamed of you. 
God is not ashamed, in fact, to be called your God. You see that? He's not ashamed to be called your God. I read an article in the local newspaper this week. This past week, providentially, and it broke my heart, another local minister who writes in that paper basically said he is ashamed of us. And there can be no other churches that he's speaking of. We are the churches publicly open. And he made very clear how ashamed he was of our two churches. And then he offered up, he gave a laundry list of the city of man criteria of why he's ashamed of us. And all the reasons why what we're doing is shameful. But you know, church, as other professing churches continue to be ashamed of us, and they are, and of doing what Christians do, they're in essence ashamed of that, doing what Christians do, like faith in action, like gathering together in obedience, like faith's reception, receiving grace through the regular practice of the sacraments, and faith's desire, living in tents as we look forward to a better country. As they're ashamed of that, I want our focus not to be on what others say about us. I don't want your focus there. Because listen to me, it hardly matters what others think. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3, the Apostle Paul, taking much abuse, similarly said this, It is a small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. And then he said this, I don't even judge myself. My judge is the Lord. It hardly matters, beloved. No, what matters is what you see emblazoned on verse 16. True of Abraham, true of Isaac, true of Jacob, and still true of God's people today, and it is this. Church, God is not ashamed to be called your God. He's not ashamed. He's not ashamed. Why? And here is the tether. He's not ashamed because his people, his true people, desire a better country. They're not dropping anchor here. They're not hoping for better here. They're desiring the better certain there. That's faith's desire. A few final thoughts before we wrap this section. And by way of application for us in light of this text, just brief helps as we fight through unbelief, discouragement, and weakness. Maybe that's you. As we fight through as sojourners, exiles, and strangers in this foreign land, there's so much that can be discouraging, is there not? Number one, and I I submit these by way of reminders. This is really Christian 101, but we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. There's so much to see in this day, is there not? There's so much to see. And we would say it another way. Let me get really deep and practical. Our faith is not a sensual faith. We don't derive faith from our senses. Do not let your senses drive the bus of your pilgrimage. A walk by sight sees all that this city of man has to offer. The wicked winds, the arrests, all the getting away with it. You know what I'm talking about? The getting away with it. That's what our senses see. We don't walk by what we see. A walk by sight looks at oppression winning in this country. It looks at churches, locked doors. It looks at pastors being arrested. Faith doesn't do that. Walking by sight does that. Walking by sight says that has the reins. And in sight, if we walk by that sight, we miss what's coming and where we're going. That's like living with half the Bible. Did you know that? 
It's like living with half the Bible. You can gut out much of the prophets, take out your book of Revelation. You just gut all of those passages if we live that way. No, church, we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Church, faith is the conviction of things not seen by your senses. That's Hebrews 11, verse 1. Church, hope that is seen through the senses is actually not hope. Did you know that? Hope that you need to see and touch and feel and smell, that's not actually hope at all. In fact, we have faith and hope in what we do not see, Romans eight twenty four. Do not rely on your senses and what you see around you in these times. No, look to the one that went before us and is unseen now, but to the one that's returning for us and will be seen then, Titus two thirteen. And who is that? Our Lord Jesus Christ in his glorious appearing. Two, repent of unbelief. Repent of unbelief. Sarah had her moments of unbelief. Do you remember her laughing at the news initially? And as you remember her laughing, it must strike you odd that she pops up here in Hebrews 11, doesn't it? The text tells us something different. The report here in Hebrews 11 suggests she changed her mind and turned How do we know? In other words, she repented of her unbelief because verse 11 says she considered him faithful. Beloved, we too will suffer with bouts of unbelief. Listen to me. Salvation is no immunity to that. Salvation is no immunity to that. However, by God's grace, we're given the will to repent and turn from unbelief. So like the father of the boy in anguish, do you remember him in Mark 9? I'm sure maybe you have that memorized too, Mark 9:21. We cry out what? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. We cry for help, we turn, repent, and turn instead to faith. Our faith, the same faith of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, that's a tested true faith. Our faith, it is so much stronger than doubt. Listen, against our faith and the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, our doubts have no leg to stand on. Have you considered the object of your faith? I'm not talking about how strong your faith is. I'm just asking you, how strong is the object of your faith? What if I told you it's the Lord Jesus Christ? Nothing can stand against the Lord Jesus Christ. Your doubt has nothing to stand on. At some point, it has to deal with Jesus she considered him faithful we cry for help we repent we repent and bear fruits in keeping with that repentance acts 26 20 that may mean for some of you and i know this is hard if we think about repenting from our doubts we consider what causes our doubts and maybe it is what's going on around us and it may mean for a season you stop reading those articles you stop looking at the blogs You stop having those conversations because what? You walk away from them feeling what? Frustrated. And maybe you need to do that, beloved. Maybe you need to do that because if it's affecting your vision, if all this horizontal action is affecting your vision, then maybe you need to stop doing that. Repent of unbelief. Third, stop looking for answers and start looking to Christ. As I mentioned earlier, it's enough to know, isn't it? It's enough to know that our God is sovereign. You don't need to know. Listen to me. You don't need to know the origins of COVID-19. You don't need to know that. You don't need to know if this is God's judgment on the nations. Beloved, you don't need to know that. You don't need to know how long this will last. You don't need to know that. 
And you certainly don't need to know how you'll convince others. That's the Lord's business. You won't convince others. You don't need to know that. No, you need only rest in the one answer. And who is that? Christ. How will I get through this? Christ. How does this end? Christ. What will happen to the church? Christ. Who will deal with all this injustice? Christ. Christ. He is the only answer that you need. Jesus Christ. That's it. You only need one answer. And beloved, it's my joy to tell you, if you are born again and regenerated, you already have the answer you need. Christ. Let's heed the Apostle Paul's example to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. You know this verse as well. He said what? I decided to know nothing among you except who? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amazing. Of course, we need to mention one more by way of help and a close. And it's the sacrament that God gives us to help us look forward in these times. The Lord's table, which we're going to go to right now. It's our focus each week, the regular gathering. And here's the beauty of the table. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. The beauty of the table is that God has given us this precious sacrament to help us look forward. And I don't want us to miss this, especially in a text like this. 1 Corinthians 11, where the Corinthians were looking every which way but forward. Let me read this text for you and then consider the last verse, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And don't miss this. Look at verse 26. This is table instruction. Where did Jesus say by way of Paul to point your eyes and mind? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death where until he comes. <laughs> 